Hiring the wrong executive costs you time and money. Leveraging work psychology, Spear Consulting helps you hire the right executive so you can focus on growing your business. For a free quote, visit spiritmco.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Tips for Team Building podcast, where our mission is to inspire and propel others along in their leadership journeys. So excited to welcome today's guest, uh, Dr. Robert Colts. Rob, really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. For those who don't know, you really like to start with a softball first. Uh, so who are you? Yeah, thanks, Jaden. Just want to say, first of all, thank you for, for having me on the podcast. Really excited to be here. So my name is Rob Colts. I am the clinical director at Overjet. Um, for those who aren't familiar with Overjet, we're a tech startup and the largest provider of artificial intelligence services for dental x-rays in the United States. Um, so, so that's what I do. But to your question of who am I, uh, you know, I think what I'm most proud of is uh, my, my personal titles, and that's that of uh, father and husband. I, I've been married to my best friend for 17 years, and uh, we have seven children. Yes, you, you heard that correctly, seven children. Uh, my oldest is 15, my youngest is one, and they promised me that they would not barge in while we're doing this. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Jane. Wow. 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 How do you, uh, how do you find time? You know, you've got a really busy professional, uh, job and then, you know, uh, obviously the commitment to your relationship for 17 years and seven children. When, when do you sleep, Rob? Uh, you know, there, there's a couple hours that I get a night at least. <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm very fortunate. My wife stays home with the kids. She works way harder than I do. Um, you know, I, I love what I do professionally. I love, you know, being a dad and, and being with the kids. So, uh, there's a good balance and, and she's kind of the, the boss, uh, taking things, care of things here with the kids and, uh, allows me to, uh, to have a lot of success professionally, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an ebb and flow and that, you know, there's times where it's harder and you know, you got to balance work with, you know, everybody has this, right. You got to balance work with recitals and sports events and things. And, uh, so same challenges everybody else has just maybe magnified by a couple of kids. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so you, you kind of talked to that that professional success that you've been able to have, Rob. Could you tell us a little bit about your journey and how you've gotten into the leadership position you're in today? Sure, absolutely. So um, I graduated dental school uh, about a decade ago, so 2012, and I have not had your stereotypical dentist uh, career for the last 10 years. Um, I, I was probably three months into private practice after graduating dental school, where I came home to my wife and, you know, really questioned if I had made the right decision, if, if, you know, I had wasted my time in dental school. I, I just, you know, I was good at dentistry. I was making good relationships with the patients, but I, I just found I wasn't passionate about the clinical practice that, that I was doing. And, um, so I thought long and hard, should I go on and specialize? Should I do something else? And my wife, kind of looked at me and she said, look, I just spent four years of dental school with you. You're going to go make some money while you figure this out. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I ended up going and getting an MBA from Penn State. Uh, it was an executive program. So nights, weekends online. Um, and then after that program was done, uh, I joined up with my best friend from dental school. Actually, uh, we moved out to Portland and over a couple of years, bought a, a handful of dental practices, uh, grew that uh, and then ended up selling that. We had some some personal concerns. So we ended up having to relocate uh, to be closer to family out in Utah. So for a year, I actually commuted back from Utah to Portland, Oregon to help manage these practices and you know hold team meetings and things. 
But uh, anyone who's traveled a significant amount knows that that sort of schedule is not, uh, it's not necessarily a long-term solution. So I ended up selling that group um, and, and eventually found my way back here to Pennsylvania where I had first practice out of dental school. Um, you know, just a couple of miles from where I lived, uh, was recruited to be a chief operating officer for a, a small uh, dental support organization here. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of good experiences helping run that organization. You know, I was here for just a couple of years before I was introduced to Overjet, uh, who's my current employer. And, uh, you know, so transitioning from clinical practice to, you know, and I've always maintained a part-time clinical practice for all these years, but to more of an executive operations leader to now a clinical leader at a tech startup. It's been, uh, it's been quite a journey, but, uh, you know, with my current position, I have a lot of opportunities to interact with, um, a lot of dental organizations and really help them implement and go through this change management process as they roll out, you know, a new, a new technology solution. Um, so it's, it's been really eye opening for me because I got to see a lot of things that organizations are doing well, and I get to see some things that organizations maybe could improve upon and, and, you know, I get direct comparisons because I interact directly with the executives of a lot of these organizations. So it's been an, it's been an interesting career ride so far. But, you know, I, I've, I've had a blast while I've been doing it. I've, I feel like I've grown personally, professionally along the way. And, you know, I, I feel very fortunate to have the position I'm at. I think I think there's a lot of dentists who, who would love to have the position I'm at with Overjet. Yeah. And I think just just thinking to your reflection, uh, you know, your reflection point three months in um, is so so important because I think that so many times you see people, especially, especially folks who have put in like a lot of work, spent a lot of money to like go, you know, a certain path, go get a certain degree, et cetera, that they're like, oh, now I'm stuck here. Right. And just being able to recognize like, is this where I'm getting fulfillment? Maybe not, but how could I use this skill set, uh, this knowledge, et cetera, to find a position where I'm getting fulfillment. So I think just just kudos to you for taking that leap of faith, because I'm not sure that many people would. Well, I, I think any anybody who's in the dentistry profession, and this is probably true for a lot of professions, is there's a lot of Facebook groups out there. And there's constantly posts of people saying, you know, I'm 10 years in, I'm burnt out, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, you know, or, or, or there's posts of, Hey, what, what jobs can I get as a, as a dentist that don't involve seeing patients? And so there, I think anybody who's in dentistry, and I think this is true in a lot of other professions as well, you know, for example, I'm part of a number of different Facebook groups and in these groups, you will see a significant number of posts to people who are saying, Hey, I've been here practicing dentistry for 10 years. I'm burnt out. Uh, you know, what else can I do? You know, how, how can I use my dental license and not have to see patients? And, and that wasn't necessarily the case with me. I actually quite enjoy the clinical practice of dentistry. It just was something I recognized early that I didn't think was going to be a long-term fit for me to do five days a week for the next 40 years of my career. So, um, you know, I've been fortunate that I've been able to practice clinically throughout my career, at least, you know, a day a week or a couple of days a month, um, but be able to use some skills that I feel like I had that I wanted to utilize that I didn't feel like was necessarily being utilized chair side uh, with patients. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that that's great to just have that, that, uh, you know, that moment of truth to, to figure that out. So Rob, you talked about some of the other skills that you want to, uh, you, you wanted to leverage outside of just the clinical skills that you have. So thinking, you know, thinking business, thinking leadership, um, et cetera, which is where you find yourself now. And I think one of the most important skills that a leader can have is their skill, and their ability to be able to build relationships. 
Um, so would love to hear more about your philosophy, your approach to building relationships as a leader. There's a fine line when you're a leader, right? You, you want to be engaged with your with your team members, and your employees and your coworkers. You want to open up to a degree. But on the other hand, you still at the end of the day need to be a leader and you need to be able to make a tough decision. And sometimes it can be hard to make a decision if you feel like there's there's, you know, friendship and emotions and things on the line. So I, I think that as a leader, you have to be aware that if you're not engaged at some sort of personal level with your team members, that you're not going to get the maximum output from them. And I, I hate saying output because it sounds like a factory, but I, I think we all recognize what we're talking emotional output and physical output and, and having them be the most engaged that they can be. Um, and, and so I, I think you have to engage with them to a degree at a, at a personal level. They have to know that, hey, I've got seven kids, right? I, I go through the same challenges and struggles on a personal basis that you're going through. I recognize the, the challenges that you have. Um, and then a, the other part of that is you have to be able to get to know your team members. So you need to be able to have an understanding of things that they're going through. And, and I think that helps you see them more than just you know a factory worker that has output, but as a, a, a person that has a backstory to them. And so uh, being able to engage with them on a personal level, I think gives them a more fulfilling work experience. I think we get better performance from them overall. And then I think as a leader, we come off as a, a more human leader rather than as somebody who's just there trying to get them to, to meet a goal or a deadline or a KPI or something. Gotcha. 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 Yeah. And I think it's so important, you know, one analogy that I've probably shared on the podcast we've released to this point, you know, over 10 episodes, and I've probably shared it at least 10 times. <laughs> it's like this analogy that like, you know, realistically, you know, a lot of leaders, especially like old style leaders, and, and I don't want to say older style leaders, maybe it's just a different style and approach to leadership is like putting up a great wall, the great wall of China between like the personal and professional and you leave it all at the door, you don't bring anything in, whatever. And I, I, I think, you know, in my personal uh, philosophy and approach, I just don't think that's realistic. Um, I think that, you know, realistically it's probably more like a chain link fence in the way that you you want to have some sort of barrier right like you don't want everything overflowing uh but you know that you know when when things you know get tough um there, there there's a breeze between the two um and, and things can pass through between the two um and and I think that it's just so important to recognize that because, like you said, if someone is dealing with with personal struggles, that may affect the the professional. So the performance management conversation that you have might be a different one, right? It might be, um, you know, just to to be kind of that that ear uh, to listen and to to be able to help them, you know, potentially through their personal struggles as well. Um, and, and I think that. That's just such an important um, uh, piece of advice that that I like to highlight is just recognizing that you can't separate the two. And if you think that you're going to, you're going to be fighting an uphill battle. So learning how to navigate between the two um, is probably more realistic. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great point. I think if you know, I, I always try to be the leader that I would want to have. Right. And so if I, you know, let's say my wife had to go out of town and I'm I'm working from home and I have a sick child. Right. Like there, there's a certain change to the output that I'm able to give that that particular day. Right. Because there's there's some other duties that are splitting my focus. And even though I'm trying to give everything I can to work, the reality is I, I do have 
another priority that's competing. And, you know, when you have a manager that you have a relationship with that you can share that with and they can give you a measure, you know, a level of, of understanding, you know, yes, there's deadlines and things that need to get done. But, you know, certainly we understand this is going on. You know, I think it makes the work environment a place where you're not going to have employees feeling like they need to leave every time another offer comes around, right? Because they're going to recognize that, hey, I have relationships here. I have some friendships with my coworkers and I have the ability to have a manager who's understanding when I'm having a tough circumstance. And I think that's really important for, for long-term um, retention for employees. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of spoke a little bit to you. Um, you know, what I would define then as, as culture and that work environment and just creating, creating that. Um, so that way that increases engagement, increases retention, et cetera. Um, and, and sometimes culture is a tricky animal to figure out. Um, it's tricky when you've been in an organization for a long time and you're trying to like um, impact change on the culture, but it's also tricky as you know, a new leader potentially coming in to a new organization into a new culture. And I think right now you're seeing so many, you know, the employee side of the market is very hot. Um, a lot of people are making changes, um, you know, taking on promotional opportunities, um, joining new organizations, et cetera. So I think this next question is, you know, really you know, uh, relevant in that way. So Rob, you mentioned that you had just recently, you know, within the last year joined Overjet. Um, and you had also mentioned, you know, coming in as the COO or being hired as a COO at the small, smaller DSO. Um, and would love to hear more about how, how you adapt to a culture when you're entering a new position. Um, how much is it you adapting? How much is it trying to enforce adaptation on the other side uh, would love to just hear about a time where, where you had to adapt to a, a new culture and how you were able to do so. Yeah, I, I've really had that experience, like you mentioned, twice over the last few years. Um, and, you know, I think it comes down to we all have our, our sort of base core values that we hold, you know, our, our, our personal beliefs and values, you know, integrity and honesty and ethics and morality and things like that. And so, you know, hopefully we all have this this core set of ethics that we come in with that, that we're really not willing to, to change, right? Like, like I have some integrity and honesty. I'm not willing to, to give these pieces up. But then there's an aspect of culture that's more influenced by kind of our surroundings and, and, and what's happening around us and, and how other team members and, and people on our team, uh, what their expectations are. And so, you know, as, as I came into the chief operating officer role here in Pennsylvania, um, there, there's, this was a, an organization that was um, led by dentists, a lot of partners in the organization. So there's about a dozen different uh, partners in the group and every one of them had their own expectations and every one of them kind of ran their practice a little bit differently. And so the, the culture within each individual practice um, you know, had a little bit of a different feel from practice to practice. And so as I was trying to get to know these individuals that I'd be working with and, and, you know, serving as their COO, you know, there was a challenge to recognize what uh, their expectations were of me. And so, you know, coming in and, you know, is this, is this a, you clock in at seven and, you know, AM and you don't leave till 6 PM sort of organization, or is this a come and go and get your stuff done and we're not going to monitor your time sort of organization. So, you know, all those, all those details that we all work through with, with a, a new position. Um, and then Overjet was a completely, you know, different experience. And it was really unique for me because it was my first time entering sort of a tech startup, you know, private equity backed uh, type of setting where it's 
fast pace. You know, when, when they say we want this done fast, they're talking hours, not days or weeks. Um, (laughs) you know, which is different. There's some DSOs where fast for a DSO might be, Hey, we're going to implement this within the next quarter or, or two quarters. Um, and so recognizing that, you know, the availability of hours and when expectations and deadlines were, were due. But, you know, I go back to what I said when I first started this is I still had my core values, right? Like my family was first, right? My, my faith was, was, you know, number two. Um, and, and then I assimilate myself into the organization the best I can. And really the best way to do that is to understand what your expectations are, make sure you've got a good onboarding plan, because really that sets the tone for the culture and you can see what the expectations are. Um, and then I think most people will pick up pretty quickly from talking with other employees. Um, you know, if, if the, the feedback that you've been given during the interview process matches up with what the actual expectations are once you start a job, because I think we all recognize there's an element of sales and recruiting. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, as long as you're, you're founded and you, and you have your core set of culture, I, I find I can assimilate pretty well. Were there, when, when thinking to maybe this most recent transition, um, to overjet, were there any specific challenges that you faced in kind of making that that assimilation or you know making that transition? I think for me the the main challenge was really just as I came into an organization. So I was employee, I think I was about like employee number forty one. Okay, well nine months later we've got like one hundred and fifty employees. <laughs> so we're we're seeing a significant amount of growth, and and I came in there as really the the second. Um, uh, component to this. We, we have a couple of products at Overjet, one that serves insurance and one that serves the practice. So I kind of split roles with this other doctor that had been there and he went and focused more on the insurance and I split the practice because we were growing so fast. It was you know no longer a one a one person role. So it was really a new role that we were making up for me as we went. Now, I was fortunate I had a good 90 day rollout plan. But you know at, at one point, the HR person reached out to me and said, hey, can you write a job description for what you do and send it to me so we can have it on file, right? <laughs> and, and this is like the nature of, of a startup when you're, you're moving faster than like the organization has been able to keep up. And, and you know, I think this happens across that sort of environment. It's not unique to, to where I'm at, certainly. Um, but it really, you know, that, that was the challenge is making sure the expectations for what they wanted for, for my output match what I was expecting to give for my input. And so as long as those align, I think, I think you end up having expectations that are met. And it's when those aren't communicated clearly, right? If I'm expecting to give a certain level of input and they're expecting something different on their end, that's when you have um, you know, new hires that, that end up struggling to onboard at a rapid pace or they never get on board and they end up fizzling out of the company. It's all down to expectations. Yeah. So when thinking about, uh, Rob, kind of the very fast-paced uh, environment that you're in now, you you mentioned that um, sometimes the company moves faster, like it's just like moving so quickly. And that may, um, you know, just have you like in many different directions in terms of your priorities. I guess when thinking through like um, change management or just like prioritization, um, how do you balance, uh, you know, new initiatives, which I'm sure that you have, you have plenty, uh, versus improve, like making improvements to what's already there? Because if you are moving that fast, I, I, I'm imagining nothing was done perfectly, you know, and, and perfect is kind of like impossible. But I guess, how do you balance like rolling out the new stuff versus trying to improve what, what's already existing? Yeah, so I, I think we can look at that from a couple of angles. So in, in my role as clinical director, really, my primary function is to work as a change management agent for these 
organizations, whether they're individual dental practices or larger dental groups that are looking at implementing overjet software. And so, you know, really I go through the change management stages, right? You have to recognize, uh, get the employees to be aware that the change is going to happen. You have to have them have a, de a desire to make the change. Um, you have to have them get the right knowledge to be able to complete whatever the new change is going to be. And then they have to have the ability to actually make that change become effective. And then you have to continually retrain and reinforce that piece. So if you go through those, those change management stages, what I find is that the, the success of the implementation you know, can, be, can be very high. But if you skip any one of those steps, then whatever, what ends up happening is that the rollout is either significantly delayed or the ROI that you're hoping to achieve by rolling it out takes a much longer time to achieve. And so I, I've, seen, I've seen a rollout go really well where all those steps were followed almost to the T. Um, you know, we, we gave recommendations, they followed out and there was a lot of reinforcement. And then I've been in organizations where I walked in to help do a training and the people looked at me and said, you know, what's Overjet? And so like we've skipped some pieces in that change management phase <laughs> at, at that point. And so it makes the, the rollout much bumpier and, and more challenging. Um, you know, and to your question on an, on an internal aspect, because we're such you know, a young company, we're growing so fast, you know, that, that is a challenge that we have is how do we balance perfecting what we have and releasing a new feature, for example. And really it comes down to, you know, are we gathering the adequate feedback from, from all the stakeholders, right? From the customers, from the, the product team, from those who are in front of the product all the time. And, and yes, we do release a lot of MVP, some mi minimal viable product. Um, but with the goal of always coming, coming back and reiterating and, and, and perfecting those over time. Um, and so that's just a, a constant balance. And it comes down to, I think, prioritization. And do you know what your priorities as an organization are? You know, do you know where your biggest area of need is and where your biggest area of success is? And, and you know, if you measure the ROI, do you get a bigger ROI from tweaking your success or from tweaking your, your failure? Um, and so being able to measure those, I think, can be very impactful. And then that, that'll give you a direction as far as where you should focus the next iteration and, and where your change management process should really focus. Have you been feeling unfulfilled? You want to be happy, but just continue to struggle. One of the best ways to experience joy is by caring for the homeless. A charity I've grown to love, River of Light, food rescues a million meals per year for the needy in Chicago. Imagine how that make you feel, knowing that you're helping feed children and veterans. To make a tax-deductible donation, visit riverlightchicago.org. Again, riverlightchicago.org. No one should go to bed hungry. Yeah, so when, when thinking about, um, you know, that, Robin, you kind of talked about the, uh, <laughs> you know, the example of the group who said, who, who are you? Uh, <laughs> what do you do? Right. And, um, you know, obviously that that's a bit extreme. Uh, but I think that, you know, right now, especially um, in kind of the healthcare space um, and, and, and um, you know, in, in different areas um, that are reacting, I think the whole economy is reacting from the pandemic and it's still catching up from things, um, specifically healthcare, retail, some of the areas that were, you know, hit harder. Um, and, you know, with that organization's leaders, they're trying to, you know, roll things out to be ready for, for the next thing that might happen or to help the, the company rebound or maybe take a new direction. And so I think, you know, change management, you know, as you kind of, you know, just spoke to how, how important it is, 
Um, I, I think it's such an important skill to kind of highlight. I guess when you do have those team members who are reluctant to change, and that could be, you know, in the role you're in now, or maybe, you know, just, uh, you know, individuals within your team, um, you know, in prior roles or whatever it may be, new doctors, uh, you know, old partner doctors, whatever it may be. How do you deal with team members who are reluctant to change? Um, and, and what's kind of your approach or philosophy around that? Yeah, so I feel like that's really where what my career has been for the last you know <laughs> eight eight years while I've been doing operations is is working with clinicians specifically uh, on on ch- this change management process, right? So clinicians can tend to be a little resistant to new changes. You get in you get in a routine, you feel like it's working, um, and, and nobody really wants to come and say, "Hey, change this to get a you know five percent improvement on." patient outcomes or, you know, a revenue or, or whatever it is you're, you're trying to measure. Um, but it's really those first two steps of the change management. It's, it's the w- awareness and the, the de- de- excuse me, the desire that you really have to focus on uh, in order to, for this to be successful. So you have to make the employees, your team members recognize why the change that you're trying to implement is important. And if you can get them to recognize why it's important and it has to be important Right for a reason that that they agree is important. If if the reason it's important is because it's going to make the company another dollar, your employees may not agree that that's an important reason. Right now, that that is a reason and probably always a reason or many times a reason when you're doing these these changes. But there has to be a, a reason that the the employee recognizes. So what is important to the employee for their specific job function? If you're talking about dentists and hygienists, right, they truly care about their patients. They want better patient outcomes. So when we're talking about artificial intelligence. I, I don't always lead with the fact that I know the practice will generate more revenue by using artificial intelligence. I know because we measure it because that, that's a terrible lead and they don't agree that that's a, a good reason. But when I tell them that they're going to get increased patient case acceptance, they recognize that as a benefit because they see that, hey, I'm already diagnosing this work as a clinician and now I can use this, this platform to have the patient increase their willingness to accept that treatment. And so they recognize the benefit. So if you go through those, those processes, I think that's where you get the, the best awareness. And that can be through individual one-on-one meetings that can be through group lectures. Um, you know, where we're, I've done this, where I've gone and presented an hour, hour and a half long lecture to a group of a hundred doctors and talked to them about artificial intelligence and the benefits. And when you walk away from those meetings, you get the doctors who come up to their operation teams and say, Hey, how do I get this in my office? Right. And that's what you're looking for when you're doing this change management, rather than sending them an email saying, Hey, we're rolling out overjet in your office. The trainers will be there Tuesday. Like there's a very <laughs> big difference between between how those are rolled out. Now, I use Overjet as the example because that, that's where I'm at. But this is true for any initiative that you're trying to roll out in your organization, whether it's a, a new metrics dashboard or it's a new clinical product you want to roll out, whatever it is in, in your organization. You know, awareness and desire, that's the first two. You cannot skip those two steps. Yeah, and I think it's uh, a point that you highlighted is the the why for you know, each, each team member or each group of team members, right? Because different groups are going to have different priorities. And it's so like, you, you see so many times where it's like, oh yeah, the why? Because, you know, we're going to make more money. The CEO is going to be loaded. Like, it's great. <laughs> you know? And like team members are like, yeah, I, I don't care. Like, what does this mean? Like, what's in it for me? Um, which I think is, you know, what team members are always looking for. So being able to, being able to shift Um, your message or your tone or your approach based on the audience that you have, I think is such an important skill set when thinking of change management, because if you're using the same, the same message for all stakeholders, 
that message may only resonate with a certain, you know, percentage of those stakeholders. And I think that's where the role of the leader comes in, right? The, the leader has to be able to recognize that you, you can't read from a script every time. You have to know some high-level bullet points and you have to adapt to the needs of your audience. And, and that's where leadership comes in. Yeah. So when thinking about leadership and thinking about conversations and adapting to to audiences and, uh, you know, kind of growing and, and such, I want to kind of shift into a little bit of like, you know, uh, performance and personnel management. Um, and would love to hear, Rob, I think that it's so easy to to see executives who are highly accomplished and have done, you know, so many great things who have been, you know, presidents and COOs of, you know, uh, uh, dental service, uh, dental support organizations, clinical directors, MBA, DDS, and be like, man, Rob never made a mistake. Like this guy is just rock solid. I'm sure that he approaches everything perfectly. He's never misstepped or, <laughs> you know, like been able to do that. Like it's so easy as like an audience member who maybe hasn't had you know, the same level of success to kind of like place our guests on kind of a pedestal of like having never uh, misstepped. And so would love to hear about maybe a time, you know, I think that one of the, I would say in, in leadership, I know one of the biggest challenges that I had was going from like having the cordial relationship building, you know, like fun, fun uh, leadership times to like the uh, the performance management conversations that we all kind of dread. Uh, and that was a huge challenge of mine and definitely, you know, learned along the way how, how to handle those and uh, learn from missteps, et cetera. Could you maybe share with a time where you misstepped a performance management conversation, um, kind of what happened and what you were able to learn from it to kind of guide how you have those conversations today? Yeah, absolutely. So I had a very good learning experience early on in my career. So I had I got my MBA, I'd moved to Portland, I had bought my very first dental practice with my business partner, and, and we were rookies, right? Here, <laughs> I, I was a DDS MBA, so I felt like I knew a lot. And then it takes real world experience to teach you that you actually don't know as much as you think you do. <laughs> um, and so we, we hired uh, some front desk staff uh, for this office that we had just acquired. And... Um, I had checked the references on this one individual and the reference came back, you know, this is my first time ever checking references, right? I, I've never hired a single person before. And the, the reference came back and they, you know, I was talking to them on the phone. They said, oh, the work that they do is great, but they've had, a, you know, she had a lot of unfortunate personal experiences. So unfortunately she wasn't here very much. And so, you know, I, I didn't really know what that meant at the time, but I'm like, okay, well, it sounds like when she's there, she's great. So, I mean, those personal circumstances are probably gone. So we'll go ahead and, you know, hired her. And she was with us probably 10 months and ended up calling out for over 30 business days during that 10 months. And, and it was always like, hey, my kid's really sick or I broke my foot or my grandmother died. Like any individual thing would be like, oh my goodness, that's so tragic. Yes, take whatever time you need. But it was like every other week there was another thing and she'd miss three, four, five days of work. And, you know, it got to the point where I was so desperate, though, just to have a person sitting in the chair at the front desk, that I just kind of let this continue on. And it got to the point where it was impacting the morale of the other employees, like they were recognizing that there's an individual who was not holding up their end, it was actually causing more work for the other team members. Um, you know, they, they were having to pick up all these things that that she would drop when she'd call in um, sick or whatever it was last minute. And so finally, it took 10 months of this before I, I had 
you know, a serious conversation with her and we determined that, look, you know, it doesn't look like you're going to be able to meet the needs of this job. And, and she agreed that things weren't going to change. And so we ended up separating ways. But the morale from the other employees didn't bounce back immediately. It, it took a number of months to really gain back their trust. And even though we were short staffed up there, they all felt like a burden was lifted because at least they knew what was expected of them every day. They didn't know if they were going to have help there or not. And eventually we hired some other employees and everything turned out turned out great. But since then, I've started doing a couple of things. I've really tried to start addressing issues more in the moment, right? So, so, so there's an appropriate time to address it and there's, there's times that aren't. But as soon as it's appropriate to address it, I like to address it in the moment. Um, you know, I, I don't like to dress down individuals in front of a, a fellow employees or things like that. But if I can pull them aside and have a private conversation, I feel like that's more impactful because you're you're close to the proximity of whatever the, the need for the conversation. Whereas if you're waiting for a quarterly or an annual review and you're going to say, oh, yeah, there was this one time where you did this, you know, it's hard for them to really make meaningful behavior changes. Um, you know, so that's been the big one. And, and then the other one is I, I've I've tried to give employees the benefit of the doubt. And you know, once I hire you, I want you to be successful. And I'm going to do everything I can and give you every resource that I have available to me to help you be successful. But if it becomes apparent that it's not going to fit and we can't give you the resources you need to be successful, then it's best for that employee. And it's certainly best for the organization to, to separate ways and, and find you know, a better fit for that employee and then find a better, a better fit employee for your organization. So those are really the two takeaways I took from that experience. And, and you know, it took some trauma and, and some headache. Uh, you know, almost lost a couple of other employees by not learning that uh, that lesson fast enough. Um, but, you know, I, I attribute my success today to equally as, as much of my failures as I do my successes that I've had. And, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't, uh, you know, wouldn't have had the lessons learned, uh, you know, any other way. I, th- I think we learn things for a specific reason. And, you know, I, if you ask my wife, she'll have a list of mistakes I've made if you want more. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I I do love Rob kind of, you know, I, I think still want to like give kudos for like, obviously, you know, taking a little bit of time to to recognize, you know, the need to address things immediately and kind of like coach in the moment. Uh, but I think that you know, I, I saw a meme a couple weeks ago on, on LinkedIn where it was like, you know, I have this terrible, you know, this manager's going to HR and they're like, I have this terrible employee. They've done X, Y, and Z. They're not, you know, fitting. Can you, can you help me? And, you know, the HR person just responds like, have you had a conversation with them? And the manager's like, no, <laughs> you know, like, so I think that like there, there are many, many leaders uh, who, you know, who struggle, um, you know, even after many years to have those conversations. But I think that's really what differentiates, you know, between the manager and the leader um, is that you're you're leading with your heart and leading to help like, because, you know, ultimately, I think those those difficult conversations, you know, if they're coming from a good place, um, you know, the employee can tell that oftentimes the employees know if they're not meeting expectations and like, you know, so that kind of differentiates you as someone who wants to like support them and moving past these issues. Um, you know, if that's, if that's doable and sometimes it, it may not be, but I think you, you don't know if you avoid having that conversation. Well, I think that goes back to what you talked about earlier and that's, if you don't have some level of a personal connection or relationship with your team members, if the only time you come to talk to them is to tell them what they're doing wrong, like you're not going to have a high performing team. Right. And again, I don't believe that you should be best friends 
with people reporting to you necessarily, but you do need to have some sort of level of relationship. And what I found is that people don't often quit the job, they quit their manager, right? And so if they have a good manager who tries to help them be successful, uh, they will put up with a lot of job nonsense around them. But as soon as they have a manager who's not supportive of them, who's not helping them be successful, and they feel like they don't have an advocate on their team, that's when they start looking for other jobs elsewhere. Um, you know, at at, uh, at the dental group that I that I helped run, uh, we list uh, release a series of twelve questions, and every one of the twelve questions, and and I didn't make them up. I got them from a book on you know what the world's best managers do or something like that. Uh, it's a list of questions that only one of them ever mentions the word supervisor, but all 12 of them can be impacted by the supervisor. So really it's a survey on how well is your manager supporting you. And it was really an eye-opening survey because we found there was one specific practice that got significantly lower scores than all the others and surprised they were having high turnover. And so, you know, by using that survey, we were able to pinpoint the breakdown from the managerial standpoint and able to help address that. And so if you have a strong manager, I think you have strong teams. And when you have strong teams, that's when you have a successful company. Love it. Love it. So thinking, Rob, obviously, as a leader, you have that responsibility to coach and develop your your own team, you know, your direct reports. And, you know, if you're at the level where your direct reports have direct reports, you know, then your indirect reports and kind of setting that example and and helping them grow. Um, but but I'm sure that in your in your role, you know, especially right now in a, in a fast growing startup, uh, you know, you it sounds like you all are kind of like learning on the fly and kind of like piecing, you know, that, that, that sounds bad. Right. But I think, you know, there probably are certain elements where just the, the nature of the beast in tech and startup um, in a fast paced environment is that there is a nature uh, of learning on the fly and, and such. And I think that that opens up an opportunity for you as a leader to not only like coach downwards when thinking of like the org chart, uh, but to also like, coach upwards um, and, and holding others accountable, just sharing feedback, you know, whatever it may be. Can you share your approach to coaching up or coaching sideways within an organization? Because I think that that's something that a lot of folks probably struggle with. Yeah. And that's actually one of the aspects of, of my jobs that I've, I've really enjoyed o- over time um, is being able to help others grow individually. So um at Overjet, you know, to your point, I often say that it feels like we're building the ship as we're flying it. <laughs> um, so, so that that was accurate, and, and you know, that doesn't mean the ship's not great. It just means that we're kind of discovering things as we go. But you know, there are a lot of opportunities uh, within any organization. I think for that for you to make an impact, even if you don't have a direct report. There, there's a good book I read um, a year or two ago called uh, "Leading Without Authority," and and the whole premise of the book is how do you demonstrate leadership if you don't have a direct report. Like, how can you influence those around you positively that you don't have a reporting relationship with? And, and you can still be a leader and act like as a leader would in a situation where you may, might not have people reporting to you. And, and, you know, the way you do that is through example, it's through getting your work done, it's through being available. Uh, if others have questions, they can feel they can come to you, even if there's no reporting relationship. Um, and then I think as a leader, you know, your success as a leader should be measured by the success of those reporting to you and the organization as a whole. And so how do you build those individuals up? How do you how do you help them recognize areas where maybe they have some some inadequacies or deficiencies in a certain area? How do you how do you help augment those so that they can learn and grow in those areas? 
And so being able to recognize that within your team members and then be able to help give them the particular information they need. So, you know, one of my favorite exercises I like to do with direct reports is discover together uh, maybe some area where they feel like they need help with and then picking a a book, for example, and then reading it, you know, not together together, but reading it individually in sections and then coming together and discussing and having, you know, discussions and how can we apply this into our current, um, you know, work environment and into our personal lives. Um, and I found that, that by doing that, it really builds meaningful relationships with those individuals because they feel like you're taking the time to care about them and their success and growth. Um, but then it also does significantly impact their ability and their performance within the job. And, and it comes back to, you know, when people have a good manager or a good leader, they tend to give more for the company in spite of, you know, maybe they're not happy with how much their health insurance costs, or maybe they don't like that they have to work every other Saturday or something. But when they have a good leader who they feel like cares about them and is helping mentor them, they're willing to put up with more of those sort of annoyances than they otherwise would have. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that, that's great. I love the approach of kind of doing like independent book studies and, you know, just kind of walking through those things specifically if it's a, if it's like a challenge that, that they've helped to identify as well. Um, Could you maybe share, um, you know, a time where you had to, to coach like your boss or your leader? um your manager um you know in terms of like helping helping them grow as well yeah and you know that that could be a challenge because there has to be some receptivity from that <laughs> individual right so like in order to do that you, you kind of have to take your ego and hang it on the door a little bit so I, I think certainly there's been times where I, I have learned things from people that have been my direct reports and you know, I try always, if I'm in a hiring process and I'm hiring somebody for a specific role, I try not to be the smartest person in the room with my direct reports. Like if I hire you, I want you to be an expert at whatever I'm hiring you for. I want you to be better than I am at that. Um, You know, it's like you're sitting on, on uh, on an executive board your CEO should not be the best finance person. He should not be the best <laughs> operations person. He should not be the best whatever. Uh, you know, the CEO should hire those who are the best and surround himself with those people that make him and the organization better. Um, you know, and, and you know, I, I had an experience with that at uh, at the dental group that I helped run here in Pennsylvania, where our CEO was the the founder of the organization and had you know a, a great vision. He was a, a, a master visionary and had an incredible heart, right? He, he loved the employees. He loved patients. Um, you know, but, but he didn't necessarily have a lot of operations experience, right? He, he definitely didn't have any finance experience. And so he recognized that and he was able to use the experience from his, his executives to help strengthen his own abilities, but then also lean on us and, and trust us in those areas where, we're, where we were, you know, functioning so that we could help the organization grow. So I think as a leader, it's recognizing where your deficiencies are surrounding yourself with individuals that'll help make up for those. But then you've got to trust them as they're making those decisions. And so if you get that dynamic, you know, as as a direct report, looking up to your superior, I I think that's a good relationship to be in because you feel like your input is valuable. And you're not just there doing things that that you're being told, but you're actually contributing and and you're improving upon whatever the process is that you're working on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think you really hit on like a, a really key point of like not being the, the smartest person in the room. Cause I think that it's so like, you know, I always tell my team that it's like, I, I hire you because I want, like, I want you to be smarter than me. I want you to be better than me. <laughs> like, obviously that makes all of our jobs, you know, better, if, like, and easier if we're continuing to kind of raise the bar in that way. 
Um, and, and I think that, that some folks who get to a certain level, you know, maybe have a challenge with that. Like, oh, no, I've gotten to this level. I have to be the smartest person in the room. And, you know, um, very toxic way of thinking. But I think that, you know, I'm sure, you know, it is prevalent in some ways. So appreciate you kind of highlighting just the the importance and value of um, of not. And I think that a lot of that, I, I guess I should go back. I think a lot of that, like, you know, comes from, comes from a place of fear of like fearing of being inadequate or fearing that someone's going to take their position if they're better than them or whatever it may be. Um, so just kind of highlighting the value that, that comes from just surrounding yourself with brilliant, uh, brilliant people and kind of like, you know, raising that bar on the teams that you have. Yeah. I think as a leader, you really have to, you should be the best leader for whatever your team is, right? Like that should be why you're there because you're the best leader, not because you're necessarily the best doer of each individual component that makes up your team. And that's important to recognize. And you're right, that takes security. It takes the ability to be okay with somebody being better than you at something. Um, But if you're going to have a high performing team, like you need each individual piece to be high performing in, in the piece that they're responsible for. Yeah, absolutely. So Rob, if uh, folks in the audience today were inspired by the wisdom that you shared, um, you know, would like to learn more about you, learn more about Overjet, um, et cetera, how can people reach out to you? Yeah, our, our website's just overjet.com. You're welcome to investigate, take a look at it. I'd love to hear from you individually. My email is really easy to remember. It's just rob at overjet.com. Uh, so reach out to me. I'm happy to chat more about uh how I got to where I'm at, or if you need, uh, you know, if you're a dentist looking for uh, feedback or mentorship, I'm, you know, always available. Awesome, 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 and we'll add that into our show note show notes as well. Uh, so, Rob, just thanks so much for taking the time to be a guest on the Tips for Team Building podcast, where our mission is to inspire and propel others along in their leadership journeys. Really enjoyed the opportunity to reconnect with you, to be able to share your wisdom with our audience, and I look forward to continuing uh, the dialogue. Thanks for tuning in to the Tips for Team Building podcast, where we propel others along in their leadership journeys. If you enjoyed the show, would you please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listened? You can also visit www.spiritmco.com to find out more about how Spirit Consulting inspires virtuous leadership. We'll see you next time.